the finance role revolution will not be televised. Will not be televised. So hi Simon, thank you very much for being part of the show. It's great being here in, in another cool office in Hoxton. Uh, they seem to be in the abundance, but full of great people. Very different to my uh, corporate space that I'm working at the moment, but good to be here. First of all, if we just reflect a little bit on where you are today and, and kind of where you've come from, just as a, a very brief kind of history, you started out in core finance. There were some great key roles in finance as a, as a financial controller, then moved into FD ship, and now you're in this crazy startup world, fingers in lots of pies, working very differently. So maybe you could sort of reflect a bit on that and tell us a bit more about those FC days. Sure. So I left university and I didn't know what to do next. So my mum made me do an accounting qualification, which I think in hindsight was a really good move. It was either do that, be a lawyer, or go in the army, and obviously the last one terrified her. That was it, three options. That was my only three options, because they were the only three that ever came back from any kind of psych test I ever did at school. If you liked sports and being outdoors, you should obviously join the army. That aside, I decided to um, just do that. I worked in practice to start with, which is a great grounding for anybody, because you get to experience lots of different types of companies through very, very different weird sectors and interesting sectors and dull sectors. There's plastic piping and tubing and all sorts of other bits and pieces, which makes you realize how companies exist and how people can earn a living. But the grounding is really important. And then from there, you suddenly realize actually practice isn't the answer and it's more interesting going into commerce. So you leave and then start to learn and apply the theory, I guess. So I worked at very cool companies like Atari, where I got to go and go on film premieres for The Matrix and for Terminator. So we made games. So it was a very cool environment for me in my 20s. I enjoyed playing games and... Not the um, same as the audit days. Exactly. Exactly. So suddenly all this um, stuff came to life for me. How do you keep people in audit when there's such a, a world out there? You know, do you feel that that was a very personal thing that you know it was just wasn't for you, or do you think grass is always greener when you're in audit? I think yeah. I guess they are very carefully not telling people that the grass is greener. They don't actually let them look over the fence and see that it's greener. I think very few people who've sampled commerce want to go back into practice. So I don't know anyone that goes back in. But I think once you leave, you're no longer on the pathway to be a partner at Deloitte or somewhere where you get wonderful money and, and all that kind of safety and the good stuff that comes with it. So you have to sacrifice that. And then I think once you're out, you're just very happy. And for me, the best thing I ever did was get involved in companies that I had a genuine interest in because the day goes by a lot quicker. And I like talking to the marketing people and I like talking to the salespeople. So I think from the early days you asked about as an FC, the best thing you can do is not isolate yourself as finance, not just kind of churn through your month end and do all those things you're supposed to do, but you have to actually go out and talk to the people in the business, understand why the business works and what doesn't work and what games work, what, what sort of fails and doesn't make an impact. So I was very interested in technology, I guess, from quite early on in my career, just naturally anyway. Okay. And, you know, that getting up from your desk message seems to be a huge theme in terms of strategic business partnering, finance business partnering is a bit of a trend at the moment. But what sort of behaviours do you encourage people to take on if they are really going to have that broader role rather than this sort of deep, narrow role? You know, yes, getting up from your desk, but sometimes it's hard to get a seat at the table, you know, to use another cliche. Well, you kind of start to buddy up with people, I suppose. So you do something for somebody, you give them a piece of work, you say, 
would it be really interesting to know about how to do this? So you give them some analysis, you become reliable, you become plausible. And all of a sudden, you have to have some iota of personality. And I think if you do, then you kind of get welcomed into the PR team and the marketing team and the sales team because you you understand what they're going through, you have empathy for what they're doing, and you understand what they need to do to achieve something in the business. And I've sat in meetings where the operations team blames the sales team, blames the marketing team, who blames the product team, who blames... So it's quite sort of circular. So it's very interesting. I think you have this dynamic of uh, all these functions in a company, and the finance person has every right to be in those rooms and those conversations because there's nothing that goes on in that business that doesn't involve some money, either going in or money going out. So I think... We've made ourselves integral. How integral you can be as an individual kind of comes down to your personality. If you're the sort of person who likes to sit quietly and do a spreadsheet, yeah. just so you've done your work and you think that's where it begins and ends, then yeah. if you can't change that, I don't think you're going to evolve into a, a CFO that you're expected to be today. There's a, definitely a trend that the controller role that you talk about, you know, and people being sort of buried in spreadsheets is at automation risk, shall we say. You know, yeah. people are looking at processes in much more detail, systems are providing, you know, data and ways of analysing things better than before. And that was really the mainstay of that kind of Excel spreadsheet accountant who was happy to do 50 hours, 60 hours, work the weekend, but they've crossed the line with their month-end pack. You know, do you think that those days are, are numbered because of what you say about this sort of general trend to being a value creator within a business? I think that the data is always got its place. So as long as somebody somewhere is collecting reliable data, someone's turning it into information and then the rest of the business is trying to use that. I think there's always a place for the people who are really good with the spreadsheet. You've got modeling, you've got other things, you've got all these kind of scenarios to sort of key into something. So there's always a place for the detailed people. You're right though, because there's a danger of that becoming quite automated. There's lots of good software out there that basically can do all the modeling for you. If you chuckle the numbers in, the inputs, then the outputs are whatever you want them to be. And it, it's quite clear to see that there's an issue there because people don't want to deal in spreadsheets anymore. Yeah, it's funny. Some people that are entering the place, the marketplace at the moment, don't have Excel as a starting point skill. So they're thinking about things differently. They're saying, well, you know, if I've got a load of data or if I've got a load of sources, you know, why don't I just pull this into a visualization app? first rather than just bringing it into excel and then muddling through to a visualization so i think new talent bringing in new ideas um you know how do we sort of exploit those ideas if you again look back at where you were as an fc versus startup because i imagine you are doing everything and anything to make the business a success in a startup whereas there's a sort of maybe a, a narrower role so that those ideas aren't captured in, in larger corps or maybe in the past. Yeah, well, I think it's a really important place to start from the financial accountant or the management accountant and work your way up through the business because you become somebody who understands how the business works and the beat of the business. I think there are a lot of people you see today who have just gone from nowhere in particular to CFO or CEO and they're running a company and they haven't gone through the gears of understanding how business works, particularly on the finance side. I mean, it's interesting as well, because you say you know, spreadsheets are numbered, but if you look at Oracle and Sage and Zero and all the other 
it's a software work with. There's always somebody saying, can I have a spreadsheet of that? So you still have to pull off all the reports in the spreadsheet. Export to Excel. Exactly. And never, never go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that should be a t-shirt. <laughs> so you've got all this amazing kit, million pound software that everybody says can I have it back in the spreadsheet. So I, I don't think they, go, they will go away. And I think somebody somewhere is going to be keeping those in forever until the lights go out. I've been on a debate with um, a financial modeler. And you know, again, we had... Very lively debate, but we, we both concluded that you know, Excel isn't going anywhere, Excel isn't dead. And you know, we won't be turning off that export to Excel you know, anytime soon. Well, the interesting one was, I mean, obviously Windows did Excel and everything else a long, long time ago, and Apple sort of folded its arms and said, no, no, we're not doing it. And they did their own version of it, numbers or whatever it was. And in the end, they've had to say, actually, yes, we will do Excel properly the, the way you expect, and it becomes part of the package. So... I don't know if it will go. If Apple can't turn everybody's heads away from it, then... Absolutely. So, you know, reflecting back on, on your career so far, you know, you've made a conscious decision to go into finance, not the army. Yeah. <laughs> you've moved through the ranks, and it sounds like it was a really good step for you personally to move from sort of audit into industry. And you kind of called out your communication skills, I suppose. That seems to be the, the sort of secret behind your success. And is there is there anything else that you think you would be looking for in a modern CFO or, or someone who's you know looking to work more innovatively nowadays? So I think a modern CFO is basically regarded as the number two. When somebody goes away who's the CEO or the MD, the CFO or the, the FD seems to be the sort of natural standing because they have decent empathy for all the other departments now their, their lead is money and cost and revenue but i think they seem like the natural number two so I, I think with that you have to have an understanding for marketing pr sales i don't think you necessarily need to know how to do them or how to run a crm system etc but having an empathy for the other teams and understanding it means that this is why so many fds and cfos become the ceos and the mds so would you say that they're a good number two and they're going to stay there or are they CEO-elect? Because I see a lot of people positioning themselves as CFO stroke COO and therefore, you know, you, you're, you're sort of explaining in that title that there's more to you than just the numbers and possibly with the move up to, you know, CEO or, you know, do you see potentially with all the technology coming in to influence the business so much, they're, they're more of a CIO, a technologist. Which way do you think it will go for a CFO? I think it depends on the individual. I think if you're, there was a case of the FD, I think BA, he became the MD, and the first thing he did was hire an FD, so he didn't just stop going back to doing the numbers, which is what he felt comfortable with. So I think there's a comfort zone for finance people. We don't tend to be the ones standing in front of people giving speeches. And I think that's a kind of, classic part of an MD and a CEO they're, they're very good at standing up and telling everybody it's going to be okay and not really saying anything in particular sometimes but just reassuring everybody and banging the drum and being good at that but I think there's definitely the opportunity according to the individual I think they have a lot of credibility you're plausible with the numbers people kind of believe in you you've become this kind of trusted soul within the business people look to you to lead in a certain way and I think it's down to the individual if they can break out of that and become the CEO it's not the dream to run a company because then it's yours to win or lose. Yeah. I think the CFO, number two is always a nice place to sit because you can still achieve a lot. You're still relied on. You don't necessarily get the, <laughs> the problems. <laughs> no problem. 
So, you know, the CFO generally is the face of the business into the markets or into the shareholders, stakeholders. But, you know, you're saying that, that if they're comfortable with that, it would be a fairly easy move into being this CEO, Uber communicator, visionary. If that is the path, what should they be thinking about? You know, is there, should they be thinking about you know, communication plans, communication strategies? You know, how do I, as a CFO, drive this vision to get everybody behind me? Is the request from the CFO who wants to become CEO-elect to be a communicator only, or is it more to it than that? It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, it depends on the business that they're in. I think with startups, I've gone particularly down the road of technology. I think you become better at something than the other people in the room. That always helps. If you have a specialist um, skill, I think you're going to be finance anyway, so you should win that war with somebody else. If you can get other strengths like technology, that seems like a good place to go. Not a lot of companies have CTOs. You definitely have a good shout if you start to bring in software and other technology. You just want to make yourself invaluable, I think. And it's quite easy to do as the finance person. You see a lot more than everybody else in that business sees. And invariably, the CEO won't understand the finance as well as you will. So I think you're in a really good position of strength. I mean, the assumption isn't that everybody wants to become a CEO, but I think there's very few more credible people within a business to take over the leadership. So I'm always on the search for innovators within the world of accounting and finance operations, shared services. And I have stumbled across an amazing company that's doing some great work in the Nordics. In fact, they're one of the biggest providers of this solution in the Nordics, and they're looking to expand their reach into Europe. The company's called Quivalia. They are sponsoring this podcast, and they're co-authoring a few articles with me at the moment. I truly believe that they are walking the talk. You know, they've been 10 years experts in sort of transactional analysis on the AP side, stopping leakages in capital around sort of mismanaged VAT, overpayments, double payments and things like that. The sort of basic stuff that's been talked about for a long time. But they've now moved up the value chain. Their leadership team there is really trying to push the boundaries into next generation finance. A couple of examples of that are that they are providing an offering for free, which is brilliant. SMEs, small businesses, small medium-sized businesses can have a free e-invoicing software. But at the same time, they've developed a protocol, a format for the exchange of invoices to basically eliminate that transactional process for invoicing, which would take conversations around automation in this area up another level, you know, automation, accounts payable automation on steroids, you could call it. And they're just automating everything in that process, whether it's validation or bounce backs or, you know, supply monitoring, whatever it is, they are looking to speed up that process to the point where you could almost say you've eliminated that process. There's a few people talking about that in the blockchain space, but I uh, you know, I'm not sold on that. And I think Cavalia are thought leaders in this area and they're definitely walking the talk. So if you're interested in AP and trying to improve the value that you provide in that area, then check out Cavalia. Their website is qvalia.com. And like I say, they are one of the biggest players in the Nordics, uh, helping customers all over Europe and they're looking to expand their reach. So they're there for you. 
And back to the pod. So, you know, looking at this sort of position of, of power in a way that the CFO has of being a whole company information provider, but also as a whole company analyst, you know, do you see that position remaining indefinitely? Because one of the things that the CFO has always had is, is like you say, the data for everything the team to provide the analysis for the whole company. But now there seems to be a trend where you know, everyone's an analyst, everyone's available, all the data is available to everybody, you know, potentially through self-service or, or different routes. Does that potentially erode that position for the CFO? Yeah, I think you're saying knowledge is power and it's getting shared out so much that how can you really add that much value? If you take this um, company, TouchNote, everybody here is very aware of conversion rates and lifetime value and all these other metrics that have come about in the last you know, five to 10 years. These are the gold dust metrics. Everybody knows about them. So if you go to anybody from the product developer to the marketing person to anybody else in the company, they have an idea of how much money you need to get out of somebody, how much money it costs you to get them in in the first place, how long they'll stay for. So yeah, I think you're right. There's an accessibility. Google Analytics have made it very easy to tell you if somebody's come to your site, you've got things like Appsy, which let you see where somebody's looking on a website, when they clicked out, why. It's basically a heat map. It tells you where everyone's clicking. So the level of software and support and stuff out there that aids you is now quite impressive. But you still come back to somebody having to know that stuff exists, yeah. how to leverage it, how to use it, what to then do by the fact that everybody's clicking away on your homepage. What do you do? Well, you have to have a new homepage. So is that down to your design or what's wrong with that? You have to optimize it for mobile. So there's lots and lots of things you have to do. It's not, it's not just enough to know something. It's what you do about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do see that kind of merging of finance and operational analytics and, you know, whether it's sort of on the website, marketing side, digital side, or whether it's in, you know, distribution or, or any kind of big operations. Those two worlds seem to be coming together because the analytics that used to be the reserve of the, you know, the board produced and talked to by finance professionals is now kind of being delivered at source. But you still need to have that financial view overlaying on the operational view and you still need to have that credibility, right, which is you know, the base of the CFO's role. You know, people will listen to you because of you know, your education, your experience and your judgment. But which leads me on to a question around sort of developing people, young people, and how they develop good judgment. Because we're, we're seeing that, you know, millennials and iGens, digital natives, are starting to come into business. And they have different expectations of the workplace. They're looking to sort of work on projects. They're not necessarily honoring this career chain, career path. And... They potentially are, are focusing on, on skills rather than overall projects and you know, really adding value over time. And you know, some people have suggested that that means that their long-term judgment on things within the finance world is going to be impaired because of the, the sort of short-term nature of how they're working there. Do you see that happening or bearing out within the startup? And if you took yourself back to the uh, your FC roles, FD roles, would you employ a person like that who was really focused on 
you know, short-term projects and innovation goals, but, but not necessarily that bigger judgment that's going to keep you at the table. So uh, I think there's, a, there's quite a lot in what you just asked. Everybody's talking about exit strategy now. It seems to be the big thing. So whereas you used to build up General Moses or wherever else, you'd have companies that were there for the long game that would be there, you know, 100 years, 150 years. The founders of these companies wouldn't be thinking, how can I sell this business in five years? It's a very different environment now. You have this mentality that don't worry about profit because you can just get more money. You can just get more investment. Investors will just keep putting money into something like you've got Uber and Airbnb and all these companies that didn't turn a profit for years if they, if they have, in fact, even turned a profit. This mentality is sort of taken through and it's permeated into marketing and everybody else that's come in and all these 20-somethings that have come in probably fairly fresh in university. They may have built something at university. They may, they're hugely smart, hugely. I mean, they're incredibly intelligent, but they are very short-termism. They're, they're looking at something thinking, you know, in three to five years, my shares will convert. I'll, the business will sell for one billion because it's a unicorn and everything's a unicorn. If it's not a unicorn, it's failed. <laughs> it's an incredible I want it now mentality. Are they stuck in a sort of R&D phase? You know, thinking of a sort of product life cycles and really not considering, you know, the maturing of that product. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a certain um, pyramid selling going on here. You're basically saying it's not going to be my problem because in five years I'll have sold it to a bigger problem, a bigger fish. It'll be their problem. And it kind of goes on and on and on until the last person or company standing holding on to this thing goes, I don't know what to do with this now. It hasn't made a profit forever. It's massive. It's got a huge customer base. It doesn't really do anything anymore and you know i think if someone told you 15 years ago there'll be an app that will just basically get your taxi no one would have understood why you needed that because you could just put your hand up get a taxi or phone for a taxi what did it really achieve but it's lovely seeing it on a map arriving (laughs) there's some incredible talent out there really talented but i think there's a lot of people who've shortcutted and got to where they are by not going through these gears they've just sort of arrived and now they're expected to run a marketing team and, and figure out you know, the lifetime value and all these other metrics with no real experience behind them. And actually, they don't really understand that a business does need to make a profit and it does need to care about its costs. It can't just load up and load up and load up and expect an investor to keep supporting that. And everything is indicating to a problem coming relatively soon in terms of investment. It's going to get tighter. And, you know, there's a mentality now that everybody can start a business and it can't be that hard. And they go off and build something and then sell it rent my chair yeah. I wouldn't rent my chair when I'm not at home I'll create an app <laughs> and then I can monetize my chair it's yeah. anything absolutely anything we're now down to this kind of minute detail of drill down Airbnb was sort of an awesome idea it's very clever and now we're down to this kind of the level of detail is now so low I don't think those big moments are there anymore yeah the black swans or yeah. whatever we talk about. but the younger sort of generation I sort of said it was a product development stage and it sounds like you're saying that they're almost supplying something without the demand hoping that the demand will be there at some point because you know sociologically there will be some change you know as you say i use uber i use delivery you know i use a number of apps but i could do it differently i'm more than happy to pick up the phone but if actually if i talk to my wife she's like oh, do, you know they're probably being engaged and then i'm talking to a flustered guy at the other end of the phone who's taking 20 orders and then he might get it wrong so it, you know there are definitely in instances where you're making that customer experience so good now even if there wasn't a demand for it before you're going to get people buying but 
there are less and less, right? How good can you make everyone's you know, user experience? Well, the opportunities are probably getting fewer. They're definitely diminishing. I mean, the chance for you to make a billion-dollar company must be starting to reduce. But I think the cost of it all, if you look around a high street, you've got all these issues with Maplin shutting down, Toys R Us shutting down, et cetera, et cetera, because it's all gone online. So what happens to all these kind of massive spaces that have now become derelict? Do they turn into housing? Are these just massive storage units for Amazon and Just Eat? And what's left behind is kind of a concern. And it knocks on to everything else. So the people that did work there, how do they now afford to get an Uber and all the other stuff? Who's actually paying for all this stuff? Who's the end user you know, 10, 15 years from now? I'm not trying to be sort of moribund about this, but you can see a pattern of everything going online, which means nothing's offline, which means what happens to the retail outlets and the high street and the industrial parks? It's sort of assuming that there's a perfect market there, right? When we all know that, you know, actually perfect market is just a bit of an economics theory. And people, there are winners and losers in any economy. And maybe that's missing. You know, maybe people don't really understand the economics of the situation. They think there's an abundance of opportunity out there. If only I can turn the idea. So I went on um, Techstar. We took a business to Techstar's. We joined their 10 companies on a course, we were whittled down from 500. And basically three months there taught you everything you thought you knew was basically unraveled. So they taught you how to sell, how to contest, how to do marketing, how to understand what you were building and why it was useful. So the whole thing was, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And is there a problem here to solve? You know, so it was all the sort of thing that people today should try and get themselves on so they understand how a business actually can fail and how it can work. It gets you sitting there talking to investors who are very clever people who've made a lot of money, presumably doing something that was good and did make money. And I think something like that is invaluable. And I think a lot of the people here in the startup environment could definitely benefit from that because you are going on this journey with this product, this company, people that are in it. Everybody talks about, you know, investors will want something that can scale and people are very important because the product at some point is going to struggle. It's down to the people to figure out how they get around that struggle. Bringing it back to finance people, would you say that that's sort of almost proving out the strength of finance people there, that they have this judgment, they have this almost professional scepticism, you know, they're not going to sit in the ideation, you know, the product development phase without thinking there's a business plan, there's a revenue behind this. So well, ultimately, even in this sort of startup space, this innovation space, will, will the finance person start to rise through? Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to the individual. So I think you start from a more credible slab if you've got the finance background because you understand money going in, money going out, what drives that, where to save money, all the things that are really important to what you're going to do. You also, that credibility is used to build debts, it's used to build presentations for investors. You will be in every room with the investor team. You will be going through the due diligence with them. You'll be creating the reading room. And because you have this credibility, you have your understanding of the numbers and what drives a business and how that knowledge will drive the business forward for the next three to five years, you're invaluable. You have to be part of any kind of merger, purchase, takeover, restructure. You can't do it without the finance person being in that room. They will ultimately turn the lights out and the whole thing goes wrong. Yeah. It sounds like a turning the lights off is obviously not the plan. No. But even then, you know, there's, we're learning from failure and that's okay as long as we haven't broken ourselves in doing it. But I think, you know, the opportunity for the finance person there sounds 
incredible. You know, I feel like I just want to start applying for startup jobs, <laughs> you know, because it's going to be such a learning ground and, and such a vibe. What do you think the sort of biggest opportunity is for finance people in their profession right now? Is it, as you say, you know, horses for courses, you know, a more introvert person may want to sort of look at technologies, a more extrovert person might want to, you know, look at this CEO elect um, position. Is it delving into startup and saving it or sticking with corporates? What would you say is the sort of biggest opportunity and the right path? Wow. Again, it depends on the, the individual company that you go into will give you freedom or not give you freedom. It's very hard for you to just turn up and be credible and helping with the product build or helping with partnership identification or other stuff. You're expected to do certain things. I think these are your bread and butter. Now this could be negotiating with suppliers, building better relationships with them, etc., etc. You find yourself suddenly becoming indispensable within the business. And I think the more things you do well, if you're in an environment that sort of nurtures that, and you have an MD or CEO that encourages you to do more, you can very easily find yourself just sort of morphing into other areas and other roles. As soon as you start to really identify what makes the business work in terms of how you drive customer base up, who are your customers, what are the demographics, all this analysis, you have so much power. It's kind of down to you where you want to twist that and where you want to work your way into. I think I personally like the product. So I like getting involved in listening to what a customer client is looking to do with their business, understanding that. And then I think using my tech team, we can build something for people that is there beyond the consultant leaving. I think a lot of consultants go into a business, charge a big rate, do something, and everybody goes straight back to what they were doing before you arrived. Better to leave some technology behind because it enhances the value of the business that you've left. It means that that value is now going to be part of how an investor will measure that business. So they'll say, this is now a tech business. This is no longer a product business. This is now a five, 10 times multiple. And when they come to sell it in the future, your technology is sitting in there and that made that possible. And that's a good feeling. So I like that. That's where I sort of played myself into. Well, it sounds like a fantastic journey. I think that's a very optimistic note to leave us on. There's certainly going to be a very successful future for for CFOs, whether it's in startup or whether it's in corp. And uh, I think you've highlighted some key areas there. So thanks very much for that today. Cheers.